Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth. I just ate spicy jalapeno cheese and some crackers. All right, all right, all right. So I'm going to be salivating. I'm going to be doing this a whole lot, which I normally do because my mouth is all screwed up from lime. But that's another story. I am so busy right now. It's kind of freaking me out that for the last two and a half months, since March 9th, I've been busier than I ever have been in my entire career at Blurb, which is insane. And I'm in between phone calls. I literally have less than an hour. I've got another call. I've had three hours worth of calls today. I had five hours yesterday. And so I need to jam through this. And I have 20 points, which I'm not going to get to, all of them. But I got to get through some of this. Uh, Now, who's this podcast for? It's for anyone who's worn a tank top to a wedding. And I'm not talking about a beach wedding. I'm talking about a wedding at a country club, or a resort, and you went sleeveless. Or if you took your wife to the cockfights for your anniversary or your honeymoon, then this podcast is for you. Welcome aboard. Come on in. Okay, so what I normally do is I give an explanation explanation of who this is for. Then we talk hero. Then I have a question, and then we hit the points. So I just got off my bike, did 20 miles this morning, got up at 5.15, Got on the bike by 6.15, did 20 miles, which is not particularly far. I did not ride particularly fast. Felt fine on the bike. Very odd. My legs felt incredible, and the rest of my body felt like crap. And I've been tired ever since I got off the bike. My health is, like, all over the place. I just don't know. I can't. There's no explanation. If there is, I have not figured it out yet. But I'm still here, and I'm cranking this in. I just did a deep dive through my archive, sitting in front of me on the table, I just, I'm just going to give you a rundown of what's here because it's insane. I have my iPad to the right, my audio recorder in the middle, my computer, you just heard my email bang, that's to the right. My whole drive system is over there. Got a four bay, I think it's CDW drive system. Plus I have an entire closet full of drives and then I have two massive closets full of negatives. But then I've got my recorder in front of me. I have two park passes from Monday ready for my journal that's here. My journal is right here. I have Polaroid images right here. I have a light panel, small light box I use for doing YouTube live with rechargeable batteries that I'm about to recharge. I have one of my all-time favorite devices, my Uniden Bearcat BC125 AT scanner, which I love. I love police scanners. I've got my GoPro. I've got my giant Fujiroid camera. I've got my Cotopaxi backpack. I've got my audio, uh, small audio 3D binaural sound mics. I have three new prints from Blurb. I have two, no, four prints. I've got a metal print, an acrylic print, a canvas print, and then I have a 16 by 20 metal that's composed of four pieces of artwork that I did during the eclipse. Then I have a bunch of painting supplies that I don't know how to use. I've got my Kindle. I've got a stack of blurred publications I use for workshops when I teach online. I've got my old police scanner from 1993. I have my rock collection. I have a stack of AG23s and patches. I have three sets of sunglasses, and I have all the correspondence that I've received over the past three months, which is a lot, and it is some of the most beautiful stuff I've ever received. Plus, I have a Canon Pro 1000 printer, which I've never used, and I have one, two, three, four, five, six, six framed photographs that I have yet to hang after moving in here three months ago. I still haven't put them on the wall. And then I have, by the way, four tins of photo books, four giant tubs, a box of AG23 t-shirts, and a box of AG23s inside their slip covers, ready for mailing when I get my when I get my letterhead and my packaging. Oh, and by the way, I have Elliot Ross's book, American Backyard, 
which is fantastic. And I have two versions of River of Traps, which is a book that was done by Bill DeBuies and Alex Harris, which is a great documentary book that I'm going to do a, a little feature on here in a few weeks. I'm going to do Elliot Ross next because that's a great story and a great project. So let's move on. Let's talk hero. We have two. The first is Jimmy Cobb. Jimmy Cobb played drums on Kinda Blue, the Miles Davis album, and he just died. Jimmy Cobb just died. And I remember where I was when I first heard Miles Davis. I was in Paris on fin Boulevard Fin de Calvaire, which is where my friend Monique lived. Monique and Unique. Just kidding. Monique lives there and just lived there. And my wife and I were on our way south to Perpignan for Visa pour l'image, the photojournalism festival. And we were at Monique's apartment. And I remember I had shoes that were too small. I bought these black like biker boots before I went over there for God knows what reason. Because Paris was broiling at that time of year. And I remember Monique took a picture of my wife and I from her balcony as we walked up with our suitcases. And when I see that picture, I just remember my boots were too small. I bought them like a size too small. I've never done that before ever in my life except for that trip. So I got over there with these boots. And by the time I got through the airport in Paris, I was like, I can't wear these. So I carried these heavy biker boots for the rest of my trip and never wore them because I'm an idiot. So Jimmy Cobb died. Miles kind of blue. I've probably listened to this album more than any album in my entire life. Probably not even remotely close second place. Maybe Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses is up there as well. But Kind of Blue, Miles, and Jimmy Cobb was the drummer. Miles blew my mind. When I was sitting there at night, sipping on a little glass of wine, looking out over Boulevard Fin de Calvaire and listening to Kind of Blue, I, something clicked in my head and said, this is the music for you. This is the guy for you. Like, Miles was the man. So I just want to tip my hat to Jimmy Cobb because... That album has been uh, very important in my life. Music is important, but I'm not a music file. I don't listen that much, and I listen to such an array of music that it boggles everyone's mind that uh, you never know what I'm going to be listening to. Okay, but here's my point with the hero. Calm down. Sit back down, or there will be repercussions. My heroes from now on will be 100% Canadian. I'm sick of it. Canadians are better, right? If you saw the Canadian PM with his beard, his six-day, eight-day beard, his long hair, trying to be polite about, he, about how he responded after being asked a question about Donnie Dipshit, and he chewed on his lip for probably 20 seconds. Even I was a bit uncomfortable, but I was like, roll with it, roll with it, keep it going, keep it going. And then, uh, and I was like, Canadians are better. They're better. So this week's might have been a hero in the past episode. I don't remember, and I'm definitely not going to go back and check. And I didn't keep notes going all the way back to the beginning, so I keep them now. They're on my trusty iPad with 11% battery that's hooked up to my iPhone as hotspot because I'm very technical. Farley Mowat. So Farley Mowat was a Canadian author, environmentalist. He wrote a zillion books. I mean a zillion he wrote Never Cry Wolf. He walk, wrote The Snow Walker, People of the Deer, A Whale for the Killing. Uh, it, it goes on. He probably has 50 books or 60 books in his catalog. It's per, he's remarkable. Never Cry Wolf, I loved. I still love. People of the Deer, I love. The Snow Walker, I love. A Whale for the Killing. Or is it A Whale for the Dying? I can't remember. One of those. That book blew, blew my mind. And, if, and that book, if you read A Whale for the Killing... It explains a lot of the behavior you see down here in the States that's happening right now. It happens in Canada, but Can Canadians are better. They are. They're smarter. They make more sense. All I know is I want to get a twofer 
and kill some darts with that guy. But he's dead. He died at 92. He's not with us anymore. But I'm going to get a twofer and kill some darts with or without him. I'll get back up to Canada eventually when the border opens. And if it doesn't open, I'm coming across anyway. There's plenty of open space up there. There's no possible way those guys on horses with the funny hats are going to stop me. Because I'll find a gap. You should have seen me when I was younger playing football. I played offense and defense. I played running back, wide receiver, and defensive back. I can hit the slot. I can hit the hole. And I explode through the gap like nobody's business. Even in fifth grade, I was doing that. So getting across the Canadian border is a snap for me. Yes, I've been detained several times getting into Canada for nefarious reasons, but that does not deter me. So two heroes of the week, Jimmy Cobb, Kind of Blue, and Farley Moat, because this guy put words down like nobody's business, and he was pure Canadian. Where he lived, what, how he traveled, he did these amazing overland canoe trips and hiking trips. He spent time up in the frozen parts of the, of the earth. Really remarkable dude, so he's our hero of the week. Okay, moving on to the question of the week. This is going to smart for any of you still on Facebook or Instagram. And after what we've seen this week again, finding excuses to stay on these is getting tricky. But here's my question. What percentage of COVID-19 cases are due to social media pressure or misinformation? Two, two reasons I'm asking this. Number one, I was on the phone with someone who's much younger than me, very smart, very talented, very accomplished, who admitted that they were having a hard time staying at home because they were watching influencers on Instagram who were posting of themselves out in these exotic places or crowded places and this person felt like they were being left out, and it was making them think, I need to get out. Uh, secondly, is on Facebook, not this week, but last week, the highest trafficked consumed piece was something called The Plandemic, which is a 17-minute propaganda film about the pandemic being started by, I didn't watch it, I'm not on Facebook, but it was something like the, the virus was created, oh, that's interesting, that was a... Someone tried to FaceTime me. Uh, my guess, it's my mother. By the way, let me just interrupt this question. My mother FaceTimes me eight times every day. Four of them are accidents. The other four, I answer and she hangs up on me. Then I have to, then I have to FaceTime her back. The other way that this goes is I FaceTime her every day, at least once or twice. She never picks up. But as soon as she, as soon as she misses it, then she calls right back. So the phone to my 83-year-old mother is like, is a complete and total mystery. So let's just leave it at that. Okay, so Plandemic was consumed by 22 million people on Facebook. And it's a propaganda film. So Facebook is driving, Instagram is driving exposure, and it's driving people to go out in public, and it's driving people to do stupid things, and it's still misinforming people. And oh, by the way, when you see Zuckerberg his staff, you know, having a little sit-in or, or engineers resigning, Zuckerberg needs Trump, right? He knows that Trump, if they can, they can hammer out a little deal behind the scenes and maybe Trump leaves him alone, doesn't break him up. Biden comes in, whole nother story. So Peter Thiel's meeting with Trump and Zuckerberg at the White House that, that Zuckerberg's staff was really pissed about. That's what's been happening for a long time. This is, you can see this from outer space. And space, maybe, maybe I get to SpaceX this week or next week, but holy crap, was I impressed by, by that. Maybe we should hit that this week. But anyway... We got a lot of points. My question is, how many people have been exposed to COVID due to social media pressure or misinformation? Personally, I think it's pretty freaking high. And again, it's another example of like, why the hell would you still be on these networks? So if you are, delete them. I'm telling you, 
two weeks after deleting them, you will write me a handwritten letter or you will get one of those spotlights you get for a party in Hollywood and you will shine, you will make an emblem that means that I am your spiritual being and you will shine it into the sky in thanks for me because two weeks after you get off of social, your life will come back to you and you'll look back on social and say, I can't believe I was ever on that. Okay, point number one this week is just one word because it says it all because this word represents the supreme being. Jacinda, J-A-C-I. N-D-A, Jacinda. She is the head honcho in New Zealand. Whether she's a president, whether she's a prime minister, whether they have some other funky title that's a combination of Asia and Europe, I don't know. I don't know what you call the head, the, the top person in New Zealand. I don't. It's an island. It's way, way, way over there. Like on the map, a lot of times it's just a piece of it is on the map because it's so far away. But it's real, and Jacinda... Has <clears throat> I'm choking up. She has her act together. I saw an interview with her, and an earthquake hits in the middle of the interview. And she kind of starts smiling, and she's like, yeah, that was a big one. That was an earthquake. How they've handled COVID, the way that she speaks, their sense, the idea of common sense, decency, collectiveness, etc. Now, I know New Zealand isn't perfect. It isn't. But when I see her, And then I see him, and I just think to myself, man, do we look bad. Does this look really bad on on an American resume? You're going down the resume, and you're like, yeah, I worked at McDonald's. I worked at Home Depot. I worked at a container store. We elected Trump. And you're like, ooh, ow, let's go back and let's let's revisit that little part of your life. Yeah, so it looks really bad for us. And I'm getting emails from people from all over the world saying, Milner, hang in there, buddy. I know this is ugly, and this is a dark, dark period of, in American history. Um, we're pulling for you. We're, we're hoarding Tim Tams for you, and we are sending them to you, maybe, in bulk, for free. That would be nice. Okay, point number two. Let's just recap here before we go any further. This, is for, this podcast is for anyone who's worn a tank top to a wedding, not a beach wedding, but like a legit wedding at a resort, and you just had to go sleeveless. Or if you took your wife to the cockfights for your honeymoon, come on in. The hero was Jimmy Cobb, drummer for Kinda Blue on the Miles Davis album, and Farley Moat, the Canadian author. And the question was, what percentage of COVID-19 cases are due to social media pressure and misinformation? My guess, quite a few. Get off the networks. I'm going to say that every single week. Point number one was Jacinda, the magical, dreamy, woman who's in charge of New Zealand. I can't think of anyone I'd rather hang out with right now than her. Okay, point number two. This was out of right field, and it's an accident, uh, but it's reminded me of something magical. So I happen, I, I write with a fountain pen in my journal, and I write letters with a fountain pen, but my handwriting is almost illegible. It's really hard to read, and I feel bad because I love to write letters, but I feel bad for the recipients because they often, I know, are sitting there probably getting their spouse and a magnifying glass and saying, what the hell is he trying to say? I wish my handwriting was better. I've never been able to make uh, progress or inroads in making it better. But the fountain pen slows me down. And so the fountain pen was a way for me to somewhat write legibly. So I've been committed to fountain pens for the past couple of years. And I have an assortment. I don't have anything fancy. I buy these little starter kits of five different pens that come with a single ink and I'll blow through them, and if I find one that stands out, I'll keep it. I use a place called Jet Pens. Uh, there's probably a million other places, but I order online through Jet Pens. 
So I have, I had two, when I lived in Los Angeles, I had two what's called bug out bags. And a bug out bag is a backpack that if the earthquake hits and you realize you're going to be living in rubble, there is no way to stay in Southern California or any place that's been impacted by an earthquake. You have to leave. You have to hike out. And so my wife had one and I had one and their backpacks filled with like, you know, police radios, water, uh, flares, um, you, Tim Tams, you know, all the essential crap you need to survive, you know, uh, perimeter laser defense, laws, rocket, uh, IEDs, whatever it takes, you tram it in the backpack and you have that. Well, one of the things that I put in my go bags was a journal and pens, of course, uh, because I'm going to write, you know, as I'm fleeing and running from the hordes who are trying to eat my, my, my spleen. I'm going to be taking notes. So I had packed both bug out bags with Bic pens. Now, if you don't know the Bic pen, I guess the Bic pen is ubiquitous. It's worldwide. I'm guessing. I don't really know. The Bic pen is one of those few things that I have a sinking suspicion the sophisticated Europeans have an appreciation for. Da, da, Milner. Oh, the Bic pen. That's my European accent, by the way. It, it encompasses all countries. The Bic pen is a very strange thing. On the surface, it looks so simple. It's got a clear housing with a very simple ink container on the inside with a little plastic plug to keep the top closed. It has a removable cap, and it's a ballpoint. Now, these pens are legendary. There are people out there that collect them, that talk about them. I want to say that Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld is a huge fan of, the, fan of the big pen. Now, I had not used a big pen in probably 40 years, 30 years. Let's go 30, middle school. So I pull these out of the go bags. I throw them in an old art container that I have, and I'm starting to write a letter the other day, and I thought, you know, I should try those big pens. So I pick out a big pen. Now, let me take you back in time here. Let's take you back to Eisenhower Middle School. I'm in sixth grade. I'm riding the bus to school. I am a complete mess. I am a complete and total mess. I'm wearing parachute pants, which are not tight, by the way. If you're going to get parachute pants, they're supposed to be skin tight. Mine were baggy. And I'm wearing Avia high tops, white high tops. They're huge and an Izod shirt with the collar up, and I think I have a mullet in the back, and then my hair is spiked on top, right? And I'm thinking, I'm the shit. Like, I'm, I got my stuff together. Women are going to be all over me. Well, it didn't turn out that way. It wasn't even close, but I'm, I'm a disaster, and sixth grade rolls around. I'm in a very violent school. There's teachers getting beat up. There's kids selling drugs. There's gangs in the school. It was awesome, okay? That's all I'm going to say is it was the kind of school that every rich kid dreamt of getting a taste of. It was chaos. I had teachers taking bong hits. I had kids doing sniffing ether in class. It was fantastic. They would lock my, my shop teacher in the cage every day and leave. It was amazing. Uh, and I loved it. And one of the things that, that happened during this time was pencil fighting. Now, let me explain what that is. Take a number two pencil or any other kind of pencil, and you get your buddy. And one of you holds the pencil, one hand on each end, and then presses together with your hands as as hard as possible, thinking that's going to change the density of the pencil itself. The second person takes another pencil, holds the sharpened end in their right hand, and with their left hand pulls the top of the pencil back and then lets it go and slams it down on your pencil trying to break your pencil. Okay? This is super high intelligence we're talking about here. So pencil fighting takes over Eisenhower Middle School. And guys are like, there, there's the Barry Bonds of, of pencil fighting. There is the Lance Armstrong of pencil fighting. There are kids carrying custom pencils in like in cases like Minnesota Fats with his pool cue. And, and, and every kind of pencil ever invented emerges, those giant oversized pencils, which oddly enough never fared too well. 
And then kids got sadistic. They like drilled out pencils and put metal in there. They were cheating. I'm sure there were kids shooting EPO at lunch break. And then you had other guys that would put up, where they'd take out the eraser and then they would crush the top and sharpen the top so that it would nick. You know, every time they'd slam it down, instead of trying to break it right away, they would nick away at you. And I was like, wow, this is, this is fantastic. This is, should be an Olympic sport. This is the best. This is better than that ribbon thing that they do in gymnastics. The school, oddly enough, did not feel the same way. The school immediately tried to outlaw this because broken pencils just littered every classroom, the buses, outside. Kids would break them, and then they'd like chuck them at each other or at teachers or at the broken—oh, wait, there were no windows. It was all, it was all particle board. Yeah, get this. Our classes had the windows uh, plywooded over. Talk about a fire hazard. There was like no—there probably was no fire department person ever on the campus. But anyway, what emerged from pencil fighting— was the pen fight. And the reason I'm telling you this incredible story is that the Bic pen, the basic Bic, was a badass. To break a basic Bic took legendary fortitude, concentration, and endurance. And you'd take the ink out, of course, because you wouldn't want to ruin your parachute pants. And the Bic. So I get the Bic out the other day, and I'm like, i got to try writing in this. But here's the thing, and I need your help here. And I'm still, I'm a little bit nervous because I'm, I'm using a Bic pen, but it's different now because it says Bic like it always did. But now next to it in blue, and I'm talking a royal blue, the kind of blue that makes you want to pillage another country blue. It says Crystal M. Crystal, C-R-I-S-T-A-L, capital M. Crystal, it's not just a Bic anymore. It's a Bic Crystal M. What the hell does Crystal M actually mean? And how is this Bic different from the Bic I had at Eisenhower Middle School? I don't know. And now, and, and to my left, out of reach, I have a set of black Bic. And I'm wondering if it's a Crystal something else or the Crystal only happens with the blue. Can someone, for the love of God, come back to me with some data with some research. And oh, by the way, I'm writing a letter to someone who might actually listen to this podcast. And I'm using the BIC. And if I'm very, very careful, I can I can actually write legibly with it. Not as well as the fountain pen, but it's good. And I'm going to keep using them. And oh, by the way, what I love about the clear shell is you can see the ink go down. And I have this weird uh, fascination with running pens out of ink because I do it all the time. A fountain pen cartridge doesn't last that long. So you think you're like, well, I'm really burning through the ink. It's not that much. But with a BIC, if you burn through a BIC, you're a badass. You're, you're a pen badass. Okay, let's move on. Point one, Jacinda. Point two, Bic pens, pencil fighting. And again, my Euro, all the Europeans love Bic, right? Europeans, and they're like, our architecture is better than yours. And then they're going to like Bic pens. I guarantee it. Okay, point number three is do not, under any circumstances, give those jackasses at Twitter any credit for putting a warning label on Trump's tweets, right? Which is four and a half years overdue. And for some reason, you get I'm, I'm seeing people who are typically educated people say, oh, finally, you know, let's, okay, let's tip our hats to Twitter crew, you know, for putting a thing on there. Do not give these a-holes who have been stoking the fires of hate for the last four and a half years, do not give them any credit whatsoever for putting a, finally putting a warning label on idiots' tweets. So that's just not cool, right? It's not, it's not a good... Uh, barrier or judge or 
barometer or metric for determining whether or not that's, that system deserves any kind of credit. I have not looked at Twitter for quite some time. I have no intention of using it again. When the, I've spoken about this before. When the pandemic hit, there were so many photographers that just kind of unraveled and were unraveling in, in, in live form on Twitter. And it was kind of, I, I just felt embarrassed. I, and, and I'm not knocking anyone who had an issue with suddenly being on lockdown. I know for some people that is a monumental nightmare. And that goes across the board. Women, or not women, with families with kids, where suddenly you're homeschooling. That, I can imagine, is like climbing Mount Everest. You've got people living in tiny apartments. You've got high-density places. There's a lot of reasons to sort of come unglued with the pandemic. And even out here, some of the neighbors and stuff, I know it's been a challenge for them. But uh, watching photographers in particular just come unglued on Twitter, I just said to myself, I can't do this anymore. So I have not looked at Twitter. I don't, I don't plan on going back unless someone forces me to go back. And that might happen, but I, I don't think it will. But anyway, don't give them any credit. Okay, point number four is I got out to go fishing. So I didn't specifically go out to go fishing. I went out to do filming, but also went to a place where I could fish to see what would happen. And I was judging a couple of weeks ago when the holiday weekend hit and I went out on a Saturday. I drove up towards Los Alamos. One of the trailheads that I had never seen more than three cars at had probably 150 cars and people were massing. There were no masks. People were acting like idiots. And I just kept going. And I found a place up towards Los Alamos that's much more remote. And it was able to, my wife and I were able to sort of get out by ourselves. So I went out over, I didn't go last weekend on particular. I went on a Monday, two days ago, because I knew that it would cut down on the, on the noise and the number of people. And where I was going is a relatively popular spot. And sadly, it's just filled with Texans right now. Texans, their state's completely open and they're streaming into New Mexico like crazy. And it's a little bit alarming. I, I spent 25 years in Texas, so I can say that without a, without a doubt. Texans can be the most amazing, wonderful people on earth. And then there's a subset of Texans where you're like, oh, no, it's the guy in the fringe jacket with the hat and all the turquoise, and he's really loud, that kind of Texan. But I could say that about many other places as well. But Texas is very specific. But I got out to go fishing. And it's funny because I live this weird life and I've lived a weird life of living in in multiple worlds right I'm in the photo I was in the photography world for a long time and when you're in the let's say I'm, I'm gonna imaginary put myself in the high levels of photography even though I was never in the high levels of photography but let's say that I am a lot of those folks look down on things like hunting and fishing right it's not cool because it's just not part of that scene and so I've always, I always found that completely and utterly absurd. And oh, by the way, one of the best photographers I've ever met in my life, the most unlikely person you would ever find, is an absolute fishing fanatic. He fishes all the time. And sadly, he and I have tried to figure out a way to fish together for the last 25 years. And we've never been able to hook it up. And that's totally on us. We could have. We just figured out reasons not to. We lived in the same city for, I lived three miles away from him for five years. We still never got out there, but I love to fish. And I, I learned how to fly fish when I was probably in third grade. My mother taught me how to fly fish in Wyoming. And so I've been fishing my entire life. Now I still take my mom fishing. She's 82, 83. It doesn't matter at that point what age she really is. Cause once you're past 80, it doesn't matter. It's just a gray area of miraculous survival. That's all it is. So I talk shit with my mom nonstop when we fish and she brings it right back at me. So I'll be like, you know, 
let me, I'll take you out there. And my goal, you old bag is for you not to drown because when you see how many fish I'm going to catch, you're going to probably try to throw yourself in the river. And then she'll respond. You're adopted. That kind of thing. That's the kind of thing. That's what my mom and I are doing all the time when we fish. So fishing is an interesting thing. And I, I'm a dry fly fisherman for the most part. I will throw a sinking fly every now and then. But I prefer to throw top water because it's more exciting. You can see the fish coming up. It hits the, hits the fly on the surface. There's a big explosion. Does not have to be a big fish. Does not have to be a big river. Does not have to be a record keeper. You don't have to keep the fish. Uh, trout are very, very delicate creatures. You try not to take them out of the water. The hooks I'm, and the, the flies I'm using are minuscule. They're so tiny. And at 51, I realized, that, so Monday, I realized I have to have close-up glasses to tie my fly now. Not if the, if the, if the fly is, how do I put it? Well, I'll just put it that way. It would, it would benefit me to have close-up glasses, which my father had when we used to fish. And I would mercilessly make fun of him, you blind old bat. And then I would run away and, and fish, and he would still be floundering around with his glasses on his head, then his hat, then, then the boat, then in the water, right? And it would just, he would get so red. If there had not been a third party there, he probably would have, you know, murdered me and slid me over the side. But I love to fish. Fishing is not just about catching fish. Fishing is about the locations in which you are able to go to fish. I've been to uh, Alaska. I've been all through the American West. I've fished all, basically all over the United States. I've fished in New England. I've fished uh, bonefish in the Florida Keys. I've done saltwater on uh, Laguna Madre in Texas. I've fished all over the place. I really like it. And it's something that I think a lot of you would probably like if you haven't done it. It is like baseball. So baseball to the untrained observer is really slow and boring. But the more you know about the game, the minutiae and the strategy of the game, is it a right-handed pitcher, a left-handed pitcher? What is their primary pitch? You know, all of these different things that factor into the game, the same thing applies for fishing. So, you know, what species are you on? What river? What time of day? What's hatching? Are you throwing top water? Are you a dry fly, a wet fly? Are you nymphing? Are you using a sinker? All these different things. What's, what kind of fly rod are you using? It's fascinating. If you, well, it's probably not fascinating to all of you, but something weird happened that I hadn't seen, which was trout feeding. Uh, I was fishing in a small, small, I'll call it a stream, because for those of you who live where there's real water, this ain't no river. It's not a creek and it's not a river. It's a stream, which is in the middle. And I saw trout feeding in a way I had never seen before. And I'm, I've been fishing now for whatever, 35 years of my life. And I saw fish. I caught a, a good number of fish and then I lost a monster. I lost, I lost the fish that gives you nightmares. Just, you wouldn't even swim in this stream if you saw how big this trout was. You'd be worried about him taking off a limb if he felt like it or she felt like it. But anyway, if you haven't been out fishing, it's pretty remarkable. We had tons of weather. We had lightning, heavy rain. It was cold. Temps dropped. I was tucked away in my trusty Beyond jacket and uh, with the AG23 patch on the shoulder. And uh, it was just a, such a fantastic day. I have not been able to think, stop thinking about it. All right, let's move on and let's just migrate back into the art world, shall we? I want to bring to your attention a... I, I don't even know what you would call them. I call them a film crew or a film, let's call them a film production company. And they happen to make a series of films that I absolutely love. And for those of you out there who are into photography, art, design, illustration, or just damn good stories in general that are what I would call, they're, they're filmed simply. 
They're not, there's not 17 drone shots and, and violent transitions and a new scene, chop, 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 chop. The company's called Nowness, N-O-W-N-E-S-S. Now, I have some personal experience with Nowness. No, they did not do a film on me. I'm not that cool. But we did a project a couple of years ago with a war photographer named Ron Haviv, very interesting dude, very accomplished. And Nowness came and did a film on Ron, and I was around while they were doing the production. So I got to meet some of the folks at Nowness, got to meet the film crew, got to watch them, got to see the overall film, etc. But I just happened to stumble across on YouTube a film called The Botanist. And it's about a guy in Tajikistan, an old man in Tajikistan. And it's just even the first minute and a half of the film, I was like, all right, I'm in love with this. But my point for this audience in particular is they do profiles on artists and photographers and designers and illustrators. And they're so good. They're short, but they're just so good. And when you when you buzz through these Nowness films and you see an artist at the level, and a lot of, frankly, a lot of the artists they're featuring, I've never heard of because I'm just not that skilled in the, uh, you know, my art fitness is suffering. I'm at the back of the pack, like with a side cramp and uh, ready to puke. I just don't know that much about it. But every time I see a Nounis film, I just go, wow, this is this person is great. And what I like about Nounis is they get out of the way. The, the technique of the filming is not the story. The story is the artist and their process and their work. And they do really well about getting out of the way. So I'm hoping at some point to be able to do similar style films of some of the people that are influential in my life. But if you don't know Nounis, check it out. Okay, point number six I think is very important, and it's been haunting me for a few weeks now. Point number six is I came to the realization, and I knew this at the time, but it took 11 years to sink in. I became a better human being immediately after quitting photography. I did. Immediate. This was like Jekyll and Hyde. It was immediately. I realized I'm actually a better human being because I'm not a photographer anymore. And that that kind of bothers me, but I, I understand it. And the, the reason is pretty simple. I stopped thinking about myself all the time. So it's a double-edged sword. As a photographer, let's just throw artists in there as well. You have to think about yourself a lot because you're on an island. You're the one producing the work. You're coming up with the stories. You're doing marketing. You're promoting, et cetera. Now, even if you work with a gallery or you're in museums and stuff, you still have to do a lot of this stuff on the side. And what happens is you have this myopic view of the world because your universe reduces to the size of your cranium. And so everything suddenly is about you. You know, I just, I just did a, a YouTube Live a few minutes ago. And I was saying that every Christmas or Thanksgiving, I get calls from photographers demanding things for me. And these are people who've forgotten that it's Christmas or Thanksgiving, or they just don't care because they're so wrapped up in their head. When I worked at Kodak, every week I would get threatening calls from photographers demanding, quote, if you don't sponsor my project, I'm going to Fuji, end quote. And I would say, you just guaranteed I'd never, I'm never sponsoring anything you ever do until now until the end of time. You don't threaten the person that you want to sponsor from. But I knew in 97, watching, working for Kodak and watching the behavior and being on the, the, end, the bad end of a lot of this behavior as a Kodak rep, I was like, wow, these people are so wrapped up in their own melon that they can't see the rest of the world. So it's a weird realization to think that what, you're, what you love is turning you into something that may not be savory. It's, it's something I think we can never, as creatives, especially today, 
because it's not enough anymore really for most of us to just press the button or put ink or put you know acrylic on canvas there it, there's more i did this uh this feature on on the peter beard book a couple of days ago and beard is a fascinating character to me and when you when i would hear him interviewed you just re- like i was like Be- peter beard's a photographer he's a photographer he's a photographer and then you more you listen to him talk you're like well yeah, technically he's making pictures, but there's a whole different ball game out here. Over Beard's head was Africa. You know, that's what's you cannot lose track of. Africa was over his head. So it didn't matter what he did down below. That's over the top. That takes precedent. The people, the game, the interaction, the destruction, everything was over him. Right, and I think a lot of times one of the mistakes that photographers make is they put themselves on top of the pyramid. It's the same. It's you can you can see this in books as well. You have an artist-driven book, which is about the photographer saying, "Look how great I am. My photography's great." They never sell. They historically don't sell well. And then you have a subject-driven book, which is a badass photographer saying, "Yes, I'm a good photographer, but you should look at this story." Those are the subject-driven stories and books and photo essays and stuff, those are the ones that are the most interesting. And that to me was what made Beard so magical was that this was not like, hey, look at me. Now he ended up later in his career doing books that were about his journals and sold artwork for millions, not millions, but lots and lots of money. But still, Africa was over the top of him, which I find great. So I feel better about myself. I think I'm far more well-rounded as a human being, especially 10 years after stopping photography where I just think, you know, there's so much more to learn. I was researching and trying to study chaos math earlier, chaos theory slash math. Now, you'll probably find that pretty funny because I was a solid D-minus student in mathematics my entire life. I got tutored from 6th grade, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And it was just, it was like being in an MMA cage. It was just survival, right? Math had me in a chokehold, an arm bar, and I was just struggling and flopping around trying to survive, right? I was waiting for the bell. But I'm looking at chaos math and chaos theory, and I'm like, I think I can get my head around this now. That would never have happened had I still been completely and utterly focused on photography. So just take that for what it is. Okay, so point number seven was going to be about Bill Barr, right? the uh, head of the Justice Department, who basically has been compromised and is owned by Trump. But I think we all know that. There's been so many stories. The Intercept did a really interesting podcast about Bill Barr. Let me just mention this before going to point eight. Bill Barr's history goes way back, and he's been doing questionable things for a long, long time. He's still doing the questionable things. The difference is he doesn't. He no longer has to hide it because he has protection from the highest levels. He's the, the one person above him, the president, those two are simpatico. They're like buddies now. So again, we're angling with Trump saying the election's rigged. It's fraudulent. It's rigged. It's fraudulent. He did the same thing in 2016 and then they and then won and said, oh, I, the Electoral College is the greatest thing ever. So right. So he's a clown. But Barr is really the most dangerous guy out there. So keep an eye on what he does and says. And there will be periods of time where he will disappear. And those are the scariest times because God knows if we know what he's doing in public is that bad. Imagine what he's doing behind the scenes. Okay, let's move on. So I'm 51, and the the, the title of this point is Everyone is Dead. Okay, so one of the things that I'm, I love about elderly people is how often they talk about death. Death is like 
it's like you and I talking about the weather or bokeh on a 50 millimeter lens or Peter Beard books or whatever. Old people talk about dying all the time. It's maybe their favorite subject. So I'm going to throw my mom in here. My dad never did it because he died at 68, had a heart attack right in front of me. We did CPR, couldn't save him. One of the most memorable days, moments of my life, to say the least. Uh, but my mom is 82, 83, and she'll throw out line. You'll be talking about, like, let's say you're talking about hot dogs. And I'm yelling at her, Mom, no more than three hot dogs a day. And she's like, whatever. And then she'll be like, I could die tomorrow. She just throws random death curves in on everything. So the other night I'm watching a movie. It's probably 30 years old. And I catch myself watching the film and thinking, that guy's dead. So the lead actor, he's dead. His wife's probably dead. His grandparents are dead. He's old enough. Maybe some of his kids are dead. And then I look, and there's another movie, and we skate over, and I'm like, that whole scene is dead. All those kids are dead. They're all aged out. It's like you look at Indiana Jones, and you're like, 75% of those people are dead. And, you know, uh, what's-his-face is landing planes on top of each other at Santa Monica Airport. It's not looking good for him either, Harrison Ford. So I'm thinking to myself, I catch myself. These, all these people are dead. You know, you watch Meatballs with Bill Murray, which, if you haven't seen, is probably the best the single best movie ever made. And you're like, he's alive, but everybody else is dead. All those kids at camp, they're dead. The, the, the DP's dead. The, the, the best boy, the grips, the, the cinematographer, the guy who wrote it, they're all dead. And I'm wondering, is that something that you do as well? Because uh, I don't like this trend. I think I'm going to try to end it, but I did catch myself doing it. So I thought I would at least say that. Okay, a couple of quick points here. I am getting dangerously close to my next phone call, which I have not prepared for at all. I was hoping to wing it, and I may or may not because it's just a one-on-one with me and one other person, and if I wing it and I don't know what I'm talking about, they're going to know, which is never a good sign, especially when the call will last for an hour, and then you're grinding yourself to death. You could be dead. We're all dead. Okay, point number nine is the SAT and ACT testing are going away. Now, for those of you who are young listening to this, which is probably nobody, but the SAT and the ACT were huge deals when I was coming out of high school. Everybody had to take the SAT, and it was terrifying. They just turned it into the most uncomfortable, awful experience you possibly could devise. You had to take the testing off to the side. You had to do this, and if your score, if you didn't get a great score, then all the top-tier schools were out in your SAT score. So I think I got a 1080 on the SAT. I think the best you could get was a 1500. I think I got a 1080, and then I think I got an 1100. I don't remember exactly. I think that's, in essence, what I got. But I remember five minutes into the SAT, I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. If you think this test has any relevance on life at all, and I remember thinking to myself, sitting in the SAT, even before, I think, I think there's a written part and a math part. I think I was on the written part. And I remember thinking, our education system sucks. Because if this has any relevance whatsoever, then we're not really educating anyone. We're, we're factory farming is what we're after. We're after that middle ground, 18% gray, lowest common denominator. Let's dumb everyone down for this test. And I just remember thinking, wow. Now, the good part is we spent all this time and all this money, and you did all this testing. It had absolutely no relevance on anything, including any of the schools I ended up attending. It wasn't even in the conversation. It was a joke. So thank God they're getting rid of these tests because they have absolutely no relevance on anything. 
you know, technically you could say, yes, maybe the math, the mathematical side, can you do advanced, you know, trigonometry or whatever. But have I ever had to do advanced trigonometry in my life? No, I'm not an engineer. I'm not landing SpaceX on a drone ship. That's not happening. <clears throat> you know, I'm mixing Tri-X after pounding a six-pack, right? That's the kind of math that, like, how many beers do I have? If I have six beers and I have an hour to process film, how many beers per hour can I do? That's the kind of math that I need. I don't need advanced trigonometry. Okay, moving on. Point number 10, I just want to give your heads up to two guitar players, singer-songwriter, musicians that I am absolutely butchering on the guitar. I cannot play a song from either one of them, but I have been trying. Number one, Coulter Wall. And he is from, God, what's the name of that town? Swift Current, Saskatchewan. I think that's it. Swift Current, Saskatchewan. He's Canadian. He's better, and I want to be him and not here. I want to be up there, not here. Coulter Wall, C-O-L-T-E-R. He's kind of the Johnny Cash. He's like a young Johnny Cash. Very peculiar voice. Um, interesting style of play. He uses a kick drum, but he uses it with his heel. It's behind him. So he can play guitar, sing, and drum at the same time, so I hate him because that ain't happening for me ever. And the second person is Tyler Childers. And um, there's one song in particular called Nose to the Grindstone that I'm trying to learn to play on the guitar, and I'm not even even remotely close. I'm, I'm literally still on the first verse, not even the verse, the first like chord changes and capo, and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm never going to get it. But I've really been enjoying these two musicians, and so I thought you might like them too. Uh, just a heads up, I did a podcast, a long podcast, with uh, Neil James, who is the uh, former BBC uh, guy from the UK, very eloquent, did amazing research. These are the guys that do the Fujicast podcast out of London, and someone alerted me a couple of weeks ago that they had mentioned me, and then I uh, reached out to him and said, hey, thanks for the mention, and Neil reached out and said, hey, you want to do a podcast? And we did a long one, and apparently he's starting a new long-form podcast and I'm going to be the guinea pig for the first one. So it's like an hour and 20, hour and 25. But he, he did his research and asked some really good questions. So I just wanted to say thanks to Neil. And I will alert everybody when it comes out because, it, frankly, it's life-changing. It's me talking just like now, which I'm sure is the, is, it's the foundation of your existence, which is fine. Just admit it and get it over with and send me Tim Tams. Okay, number 12, I need your help on something else. Uh, and this is coming out of right field from my, from my adventure side of my life. So I have a van now. I have a Dodge ProMaster. The inside was kitted out by a company called Wayfarer. We are headed to Bozeman, Montana in September for the Wayfarer weekend. My wife is actually producing that event for Wayfarer. The folks at Wayfarer are cool. They're young Coloradoans, and um, they've got this really slick system for the inside of the van. I'm not going to go into any more detail because people go just off the, off the deep end when it comes to van stuff. But it's practical, simple, fast, great. I absolutely love it. It's my favorite Arguably the favorite vehicle I've ever had. My heart does go back to my old Land Cruiser that was at an 83 four-speed Land Cruiser wagon, which was pretty fantastic. I've had some cool cars over my life. Uh, my Tacoma was amazing. But the van is the most practical, the most fun to drive, the best view. It's just the most – It's just you get out and you feel like you've got a little bubble that you can travel around. I can work in it. I can keep all of my stuff in it. So here's the thing. At some point, I'm going up to Colorado Springs. And I'm going to have a low-profile roof rack put on it with a ladder up the side because the, the entire roof of the van is a place I'd like to be able to access. One, to stand on it to film and shoot, but two, just to have extra storage because my wife and I are planning on going out for months at a time in this van, and, I, and the inside will get too crowded. One of the things I love is, is going on the water, lakes, rivers, etc. And as I mentioned before, I love to fish. 
So a kayak is too tricky to fish out of, can't stand up in it. It kills my back to use a kayak for the most part, but canoes are great. And so there's a company called My Canoe, and they have a new model called the Pop. And this is a collapsible folding canoe. Now, before any of you outdoorsy types lose your shit, just know, I know that a collapsible canoe is not a rigid canoe. Number one, they're more expensive. But and I can get a good rigid canoe for probably three hundred bucks. But this one, the my canoe is more expensive because it folds up into something the size, basically a, a little larger than a suitcase, and this will fit on the inside of my van. I can undo the the canoe, put the put it together. It's a five minute assembly, and like a three minute teardown. So it's really fast. They look really good. It's good for twenty thousand folds, which I'll be dead by the time I hit twenty thousand folds. But does anyone know about these? Uh, if you have one, let me know if you think I'm an idiot or you think this is the greatest idea ever. Now, just to remind you folks out there who are the rigid canoe people who are just like fuming right now and telling me that I, I should buy a rigid canoe. I'm not driving around the country with a canoe on top of my van. It's too hard to get it up there. There's too much wind resistance. It kills your mileage. I'm not doing that. And somebody's going to steal it. And they're probably going to damage my van in the process. And let me just remind you out there that my cousin took a, a collapsible kayak up the Amazon River with a sail mount. So if that worked for him, what I'm going to be doing in the canoe is probably pretty tame. So let's My Canoe Pop. It just came out. The My Canoe's been around for a while, but they have the new model. They just did a crowdsource thing, whatever. Let me know. Am I crazy? Should I get one? Do you have one? Please tell me. Point number 13, very quickly, Joe Biden, another stupid comment. Not looking good for this, this old chap although I'll take him any day of the week over Donnie. But uh, man, I just wish he would, whoever's grooming him, please do a better job. Two points I want to make, and then we're going we're gonna to head, head off. Joe Rogan, for those of you who don't know, Joe Rogan is a podcaster. He is also the MC for the uh, UFC Ultimate Fighting Championships. I find that Joe Rogan is a polarizing figure because there are people who think he's a muscle head and he's affiliated with the UFC and he bow hunts and people just turn off and they don't listen. But on the flip side, he's a pretty intelligent dude that has the most successful podcast on the planet, hundreds of millions of downloads, views, etc. He just signed a $100 million deal to go to Spotify. He's the highest paid broadcaster in the world. Put it that way. For those of you jaded who've never listened to him, who, who hate him because he bow hunts or he you know, does MMA, um, he's the highest paid broadcaster in the world. Just put it that way. And he's on YouTube. And the reason I'm bringing this up is, number one, to tip, you got to tip your hat and say, Rogan, way to go. He used to be the host on Fear Factor, that show way back in the day, back when Joe had hair, and we all watched television. And now he's bald, but he's incredibly successful. And I just want to put this out there that, to me, this is a really important moment because it once again shifts the tide from the expected old-school funnels of information this is the newspapers, the magazines, the agencies, the television networks. These are funnels of information that don't function like they once did. These, many of these organizations are owned by corporations that are less than savory. They, don't, they dictate what's broadcast, by whom, how long, etc. And someone comes along that's independent and just takes over and dominates. And to me, this is a lesson to every photographer, every artist, every designer, every writer, every illustrator – Everybody that's out there producing something that's in demand, you have the control and the power to do what you want. Why would you put your work in the hands of one of these traditional funnels that's going to take six months to pay you, that's going to force you to hire, to sign a work-for-hire contract, that's going to dictate their editorial content, maybe dictated by the people who own them? 
you've got to be careful with your work. And so Rogan to me is a testament of what's possible. And oh, by the way, he does long form podcasts. I've never listened to an entire Joe Rogan podcast, but I've listened to bits and pieces of many. He doesn't just do athletes. He does all kinds of people, scientists, um, thinkers, philosophers, medical people, et cetera. It's pretty interesting. You never know who he's going to have on. But anyway, I just want to put it out there because congrats to him. Uh, point number f- uh, 15 that's come out of this, and, and by the way, I'm, I've got about five minutes left. Point number 15, I can't believe I'm saying that, but point number 15 is about a four-day four work week. One of the things that the pandemic has shown me is that Americans don't work intelligently. We just work relentlessly. And if you look at our production numbers, we're nowhere near the highest production people in the world. We don't have a happiness factor. There's a lot of things here. And the Americans have fallen prey to this idea that you just have to be, the busier you are, the more you work, the better you're going to be. And I don't believe that. I think working intelligently is a far more important strategy. We have some of our Euro friends, because they're better than us, our Euro friends with four-day work weeks who've sort of paved the way. They've shined the light down the coal mine and said, hey, four-day work week means you got to focus. But the other three days are equally as important because you come back to the four days of work a more balanced human being. It's not that you have to go on exotic vacations. It's that you get to spend time with your family. You get to spend time getting healthy. You get to spend time thinking outside of work. This will never happen here because we're not smart enough as a collective to do this, and there's way too much corruption for this to ever happen. But I am 100% behind a four-day work week, work week. I think all of us would be better human beings here in the States if we had that. And I think the holiday weekends are the perfect, well, maybe not the perfect because there's debauchery of epic levels when it's happening. But four-day work week, just, just chew on that for a while. Put that in your pipe, roll it up, and hit that seven times in a row. Okay. Last point I'm going to make. Let's see. Uh, I can, what am I going to end on? I've got five points I can choose from. I think I should end on this one because I am married to a Jewish woman, and that is Trump's visit to the Ford plant. When Trump very specifically got up to the podium, and this is not him writing this. This is Stephen Miller because Trump's not smart enough to write this and just doesn't really have any grasp of, of ever, what he's talking about. But you could tell Miller had put this down and probably highlighted it and then underlined it in all caps, which was Trump got up at the Ford plant, which had been remodified or modified to go from making cars to like ventilators or something. And Trump started referencing Henry Ford and said, mention the word bloodlines. Oh, Ford's got bloodlines. Oh, those were fantastic bloodlines. That's Stephen Miller. And that is a, that's a nod to the white, white supremacists, and that's a nod to the anti-Semites of saying, hey, don't, don't, don't forget, we got your back. Just reminding you, what's at, what's at stake here, what's at heart, is that that's a, that is a complete anti-Semitic dog whistle. And he does it every few weeks. And now it's getting more and more and more frequent because he needs those people to come out and vote. They're the ones stirring up trouble. They're posing as Antifa, all these other kinds of things that are happening. But again, that's the, the staff that, that uh, Trump has behind him is these people who are pushing that white nationalist movement, that anti-Semitic movement, anti-minority movement, and that bloodline uh, thing because Trump repeated it, slowed down and smirked at the camera. And that was the, the ultimate indicator of, yes, I know what this, this word means and symbolizes, and I'm going to say it again really slowly because I can. And I'm just saying this. And for those of you out there who, al- who always, I hear this every week, oh, it could never happen again, could never happen. Just look at what's happened in the last four years and maybe have a rethink about that.
Okay, so I can't get to SpaceX. We're going to save that for next week because I'm just, I was so amazed by what they did. I, you know, I was like, this is never going to work. And I was nervous, you know, watching. I'm like, dude, you're sitting on a rocket and you don't, and no one can say with certainty, oh yeah, it's going to work. It's going to be fine. They don't know. Last point I'm going to make is, um, okay, this, this is too big of a point, but uh, getting good and staying good. Uh, I think that we, that's too much, too, too long to go. I got three minutes. Uh, maybe we should end it there. Shipping. Oh, I wanted to tell people to be patient. I've been getting a lot of complaints about shipping and we're in a pandemic. Let me just remind everyone, we are in a global pandemic with millions of people sick and millions of, I don't know how many total dead, but even here in the States, over a hundred thousand dead, you've got to be patient. Uh, and if you're thinking you're going to get something quickly these days, you should probably just relax and uh, and just chill a little bit. So I've got an Al-Qaeda story I want to tell, and I've got good and staying good. We're going to cut it there. I'm out of time. I got someone coming after me for my time because I'm an expert on pretty much everything, which you guys already know. But anyway, I appreciate you tuning in, and uh, I will be back again. I've already got how many points for next week? One, two, three, four, five, six points for next week, seven, and they're they're good. So check back. Appreciate it. Be safe.